I don't know about you, but this Texas boy is done with snow. Um, I have uh, had all the fun that there is to have with it, and I am ready for it to leave. Uh, I am tired of kids not having school and being uh, uh, stuck at home. You know, the first couple of days were fine, and last week, all week, uh, kind of got old. And then this week, again, having them in the house all week has gotten even worse. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to have a snow day where you can get out and do things. It's a whole other thing when you can't even get out of the house, when you're uh, just all cooped up. And, and last week it was even too cold to want to get out and play in the snow because it was just miserable temperatures. And so you just start going stir crazy. And, and uh, my first couple of years here, uh, my first year here seven years ago, we didn't even have a winter. Right? There may have snowed one time. And then, uh, then we had about five winters that were horrible. And then we We've had a couple of breaks, and so it took me a long time coming from the south, uh, where we didn't have snow from the you know from Texas, uh, to get used to the slow mentality of just saying there's nothing you can do, you just need to work from home, you need to relax, uh, you know you need to take some time here and use the time that you have to slow down, and it uh, it has taken me seven years to get adjusted to that, and so uh, as the snow fell, it, God just used that and told me this is a good time for you just to get caught up on reflection and reading and preparation. And so uh, I've spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks reading. I, I always read, and I've always got five or six books that I'm reading, and usually theological books. And, uh, you know, David Platt's new book on counterculture, if you haven't read it, I'll be talking more about that coming up. But it's a wonderful book, and I was able to go and dive into it. And then also I have some history books and, and uh, you know, some, some fiction books that I read. And so I've been reading, and as I was reading, I finished two books. I finished a book on World War II and I finished a book on Vietnam biographies. And as I finished them, I, and in reading the passages and studying what we've been studying, there were some things that just continued to, to come out to me and to continue to overwhelm me uh, through those men's testimonies. You know, it, it's amazing to me when you read some of the stories of what's taken place in our history, uh, especially in time of conflict, in time of battles, and in times of war. The, the overwhelming bravery the unbelievable um, just determination and bravery that our men and women have had down through the years fighting. I, I'm not a veteran, and I've met many and talked to many, but I'm just always completely overwhelmed by, by the bravery that they have to face some of the things that they face. And then to come back home and live, you know, in the movie American Sniper uh, deals with some of that. And Chris Kyle's story in the book is even better in dealing with uh, just the bravery that he had to, to face some of the circumstances and situation that he faced. And uh, one of the things that always questions uh, for me, one of the things I always struggle with is how do they do it? I mean, how do they decide that in the, in the incredible confrontation that they're about to face, that they're going to go out and keep moving forward. I, I mean, if you saw Saving Private Ryan, and, and you remember that very first scene at the Omaha Beach, and, and, and the, those LSTs are pushing up onto the beach, and they're getting sunk before they ever get there, and the bullets are ricocheting off, and men are dying, and, and it is just brutal. And I, I, I've never understood how, as those uh, boats came up on the beach, or as close as they could to the beach, and when that front end dropped, what in those men allowed them to step forward into the bullets? I, I, it amazes me. 
One of the books that I read on, on Gettysburg here the last couple of weeks, I, I can't imagine that last day at Gettysburg there in that sweeping field below Missionary Ridge as, as 10,000 men gathered in a wide open unprotected field and slowly marched a mile, almost a mile and a half uphill facing cannon and gunfire and they were just massacred it's called Pickett's Charge but as they went up they, they were just massacred but they kept going bodies just falling everywhere and they kept going forward many of them all the way into the the, the cannon place How, what drove them what motivates somebody to jump out of an airplane when bullets are coming up at you and you know that you're going into enemy territory how do you do that is there something special within you? So I've read many of these books and, and tried to determine what it is. Are they different than us? Do they have something that you and I don't have? And I've been able to talk to World War II veterans and Korea War veterans and Vietnam vets and even those that have been uh, in some of the current conflicts. And the one thing that they all say when I ask them that question, first of all, they're very humble and they, they say that there's nothing in them that allows them to do that. But they all hint at something that's very similar. You see, they all say, you have to determine in your heart and in your mind that you are going to do something long before you get to the place where the bullets start coming. See, they all say the greatest battle for them is not do you go out of the LST or do you jump out of the airplane or do you march up a, a field or get out of the bunker when the bullets are flying. He said, that's not, the battles are already happening. That's already determined. They said the battle takes place in deciding that you're going to do that. You see, you have to determine in your mind that regardless of what happens, I'm moving forward. And if you make that decision in your mind, then when the time comes, you're able to go forward. They said, but if you wait and you don't think about it and you wrestle with it and you get into that moment and you try to depend on the flesh to make that decision, how you're feeling to make that decision, you always fail. They said, the guys that turn around, the guys that run away, the guys that back down, those are the guys that have not determined in their mind that they're moving forward. And as I thought about that, I thought that's exactly the way it is in our spiritual life. You see, the greatest battles that take place in our spiritual life take place in our mind. The greatest sin struggles that you have in your life right now, you think about the greatest struggles that you have with sin. It's not a battle that's taking place in your flesh that you're struggling with. It's a battle that's taking place in your mind. And you see, just as that battle takes place in your mind, the victory is either won or lost in your mind. You've heard it said before that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The problem for many believers is instead of allowing a spirit-controlled mind, a mind that is dedicated and committed to Jesus Christ to make the decisions in their life, they allow the flesh to make the decisions. And the moment you begin to allow the flesh to make decisions in your life, you already have gotten defeated. And what I want to show you this morning and what I want to talk about some this morning is the power of the mind and how the mind can make a difference in every area of your life. You see, your mind determines what's right and wrong, not the flesh, your mind and what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, especially here in chapter 4, Paul has been telling us that our goal as Christians is to mature. It's to grow. Last week we learned that we are called to every day, every week, every month, getting to know God better than we did the month and the week and the day before. 
And what I shared with you last week, which hopefully opened your eyes, because I think so many times Christians, even if we're not growing, we just tell ourselves that we're doing okay by sitting in the same place. But what Paul told us last week is that sitting in the same place or being status quo as a Christian is actually going backwards. See, a lot of Christians get to a place in their spiritual life and they say, this is enough. I'm good enough. I've done well. I'm better than those people that I sit by. I'm better than those people in small groups. And so everything is okay. I don't have to grow anymore. I know enough verses. I read enough scripture. I just kind of just float and everything is going good. But what you don't realize is that the status quo in Christianity is going backwards. If you're not moving forward, if you're not growing up, you're growing apart. If you're not seeking God every day, you are walking further and further away from Him. Why? Because the circumstances and situations of life that we face keep coming. And they keep changing. And if we don't change, if we're not growing to face those circumstances and situations, then we're growing backwards. And so what I want you to see this morning as we look at this, Paul is going to clearly explain what that going backwards looks like going to give us a graphic detail of what a Christian looks like that's not growing, what a Christian looks like that is not pursuing God. So you have a Bible, it's in your order of worship there, I think we've printed it in there. Chapter 4, we're going to read this and and then just kind of break down how the mind plays a part in this going backwards. And so I want you to listen, I want you to read and, and see if you can see what he says about your mind, about your thought life. Verse 17 says, so I tell you this, and this is in context of what he just said, mature, grow, then, you know, if you're maturing and growing, you're not going to be tossed to and fro, you're not going to be immature, you're going to be seeking God. He says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, he's not talking Jew and Gentile here, it's the Greek word ethnos, he's using it as to saying the unbeliever. He's saying you must not live anymore like the unbelievers live, like those that don't know Jesus Christ. He says, so they are darkened in their understanding, the futility of their thinking, and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, talking to the believer, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. For you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. That's the flesh. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now remember, he is talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. He says, this is how it looks. If you are not growing in Christ, you are going backwards. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation because you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose your place with God, but you can lose your intimacy, and you can lose the power of God in your life, and you can lose your walk with the Lord. And what happens to believers is they give up all of the promises of God by turning their back on God and walking away. They, they remain in church. They remain committed to the things that they first embraced. And we've called it fire insurance before. They, they want the, the assurance that they're going to go to heaven. They just don't want to do what God says in their life. Now you say, well, maybe they weren't saved in the first place. I can't tell that. But I can tell you that if you've ever given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've committed to him, then you are justified in Christ. 
That is your place in heaven. And how you act on this earth has no place in determining your place in heaven. That was determined by Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But your life on this earth and how you live it affects the intimacy you have with God. It also affects the power that you see lived out in your life, the, the way the Holy Spirit lives, the power in your marriage, the power in your relationships, the power in your spiritual walk. And so what he is saying is for many Christians, he was worried that they were going to turn their backs and begin to go backwards and begin to live like they lived before they became a Christian. And I have to tell you, this does not sound like the kind of life that a believer wants. As a matter of fact, it's described exactly the same way as he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air and the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. For all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were natural objects of wrath, God's objects of wrath. You see, what he's saying is someone who is not growing in Christ is no, living a life that is no different than someone that's never discovered Christ. And so what I want you to think about for a few minutes this morning is when you look at your life, when you look at the way that you're living, is it showing that you are growing in Christ or does it show that you're not growing in Christ? And what I want you to really understand is that the decision on how you live is not made day-to-day in your flesh. It's made day-to-day in your mind. Because the greatest battles you face happen here. And if you can learn to allow the Holy Spirit to get control of your thoughts and control of your mind, it will make a huge difference in everything else that you do. See, what Paul did here is he really gave us an idea of what it looks like to when you stop growing, when you've decided that you're no longer going to grow in Christ and you're going to begin to give in to sin, he talks about the process that takes place. And in talking about that process, he helps us know how we can stop it. So there's a couple of things I, I just want you to think about this morning about this process. The first thing that you can do if you are in danger of walking backwards, if you are in danger of the status quo, if you have grown comfortable in your Christian life, is to remember the futility of what it was like before you were a believer. Paul uses the word futility here. You know what futility means? It means uh, doing something and not having any success at what you do. Working hard at doing something and never getting any place. It's a picture of a hamster on a hamster wheel. Have you ever seen uh, a little hamster on a hamster wheel or a mouse on one of those mice wheels? I mean, they just go to town. You feel so sorry for them because they're not going anywhere. They're just running with all of their might. And what Paul says is when, before you became a Christian, that's what your life looked like. It was all just you going and going and going, and you never got anywhere. It was futile, and Paul is worried that many Christians are going to forget how futile that life is, and they're going to begin to walk and embrace that life as a Christian. Since you become futile, you, you forget the power of sin in your life. You forget that sin can destroy. See, it's easy as a believer, especially those that have been believers for a long time, to forget what it was like to be empty what it was like to feel no purpose in your life. Futile is a great word. What it was like to live a futile lifestyle. 
giving in to everything that feels good instead of what God wants for your life. See, Paul's saying the greatest way for you to keep from falling back into that is to remember, to think back how it was when you didn't have Jesus Christ, when you didn't have purpose, when you had an emptiness inside of you that you tried to fill with everything else. He said, remember the futility of it. And the second thing is he labels this process. And I want to walk you through this process because I want you to see how it goes from a thought to an action to destruction in your life because you'll see how this is similar in everything that we do. The first thing he says that takes place is you have God's revelation in your life. What is God's revelation in your life? That means you learn the truth. You learn right from wrong, either from a preacher, from the Word of God, from your parents. But somewhere as a Christian, we have heard the Word of God or we have heard Jesus' teaching, and we begin to understand that truth. Now, understand, a believer doesn't turn their back on God overnight. It doesn't happen like that. You don't walk out of here singing how he loves, and, and all of a sudden you're in the pig trough with the prodigal son tomorrow. It doesn't happen that way. Because most people that are believers don't act that way. You see, if you're not a believer, that's true in their life. People here this morning that are not believers, that have never had a relationship to Jesus Christ, they go off and on, off and on, because they are just pretending to have something that they don't. But for those of you that genuinely have Jesus Christ, you're not going to all of a sudden crash overnight. It is a slow process. It's like a frog in the hot pan. Slowly over the process, you begin to, to follow this process, and all of a sudden, without realizing it, you find yourself separated from God. No power in your life, no joy in your life, no, no understanding of grace, no understanding of love, full of bitterness, and you don't know how you got there. Well, Paul says this is how you get there. First of all, it starts with knowing the truth. You know right from wrong. God reveals himself to you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That Holy Spirit inside of you is that still small voice that waves the red flags when you begin to do something that you know you shouldn't do. That is the Holy Spirit. And so as the Holy Spirit reveals truth, there comes a point in your life that you reject that truth part of the process you know what's right and wrong you know what pleases god what doesn't please god somewhere in your life some decision making that takes place in your brain you reject what god says that we should do you either compromise or you rationalize you know we start rationalizing i know more than everybody else or or, or maybe it's not so bad or maybe it's not that big of a deal or everybody else is doing it but somewhere along the line you reject what god says is pleasing and begin to pursue in your mind the idea of something that is not pleasing to god you begin to compromise. You begin to allow those thoughts into your head. You begin to rationalize. You begin to uh, allow those things to take root in your spirit and to take root in your heart. You know, we live in a culture today that makes it real easy to reject God's truth. See, you need to understand that when it comes to the Word of God, you can't pick and choose. You can't decide that you're going to believe some and not believe the other. You have to take the whole counsel of God. You can't say, well, I like this and don't like this. And like Thomas Jefferson, you know, Thomas Jefferson in his Bible, he went through the New Testament and took out all the things that were miraculous and all the things that were supernatural and all the things that he didn't agree with. And so he pulled those pages out. And so he was left with just a story of good man. 
and some, some nice ethical stories. That, but that's not the Bible. That's not the truth of the Word of God. And while we don't tear the pages out of the Bible, we do the same thing. We reject God's truth, and so we read something. We say, I don't really know if I like that. And you know what we usually do? We usually go find other believers that agree with us. I need to go find somebody that, that says that's wrong too. In our popular culture, that's the way it is. And let me tell you something, and this is going to get even worse, especially if you're a young person. You standing up for the truth of the Word of God is going to be unpopular. It's already unpopular today in many places, and we're kind of sheltered because we live in the Bible Belt. But you get outside of the Bible Belt and you begin to say that you're a Bible-believing Christian, you will find yourself being bombarded by other people. And it's only going to get worse. And so you're going to have a choice on whether or not you reject the truth of the Word of God or you allow it to become a part of your life. And so what happens is we hear the truth and we begin to allow the truth to come inside of our heart, but something happens and we begin to make a decision and we reject it. And that Bible says, Paul says, when we reject God's truth, we become spiritually ignorant. That's his word there in verse 17, not mine. And you see, spiritually ignorant is not a matter of not knowing what's right and wrong. It's knowing what's right and wrong and choosing wrong. Because you see, what happens is the moment that you reject God's truth for one area of your life, you start rejecting it for other areas of your life. You realize that? The moment you make a little step of compromise, all of a sudden you've opened the door to big steps of compromise. Remember, it started in a thought started with you knowing and hearing the truth of the Word of God, and somewhere in your life, at school or at home or in your bedroom or with friends, you rejected that truth, and you said, I know more than God knows, and I'm going to choose to do something that is not pleasing to God. And all of a sudden, that, that choice begins to open up a whole world of mess in other areas of your life. You say, well, I'm in my dating life, everything else is good. Everything else is going great. But in my dating life, I'm going to choose to do what I want to do instead of the truth of the Word of God because everybody else is doing it because I'm in love or I'm engaged or it's just part of who I am. And so you compromise. What you don't realize is by compromising in that one area, you start compromising in other areas. Because your brain begins to rationalize that if it's okay there, then it's got to be okay over here. And you become spiritually ignorant, is what Paul says. See, we are accountable for the truth once we've heard the truth. We're accountable for what God puts in our hearts. He says, and then you go from being spiritually ignorant to having a hard heart. It says in verse 18, your hearts have become hardened. You say, can a believer have a hard heart? Yes. The word there is calloused. Remember when you get calluses on your hands or your feet? I'm left-handed, and, you know, we used to have to actually use a pen and pencil when we'd write. So as you write, I press hard when I write. And so I always, in my growing up years, had a huge knot on the middle finger of my left hand where I would push hard on pencils or push hard on pens and you know being left-handed I had to write upside down and you know do all that weird stuff but I pressed hard and and so I can remember from the youngest time when I was a little kid uh learning my right from my left which for some reason it's always one of those weird deals when somebody says turn right or turn left and you have to think it just doesn't naturally happen I would always instinctively reach down and feel the middle finger of my left hand 
because there was a knot there. And that always told me that's left. Turn left. That's left. And I still do it to this day. I know my left from my right. But still, when somebody says, you go up here and, and go take a left, I, let's let, I just find myself rubbing it. And I remember when I was in high school, we would get pins. And that callus was so big and so thick. And so, I would just stick pins into it. And I'd walk around and freak people out because I'd have like four needles or five pins sticking out of my finger. Have you ever done that when you have a callus? You wonder how thick it is and you stick needles in there, stick pins in there, or try to break through because you've got this hard callus. He says, that's what happens to our hearts. He says, when you start saying no to God and yes to yourself, and you start turning your back on God, and all of a sudden you start sinning in every area of your life, you stop hearing the voice of God. God never stops talking. God never stops trying to reach you. But you stop hearing it because your heart has become hardened. You don't feel it anymore. That's how a Christian can come to church living in sin, living however they want to live, rejecting God, and walk out and not feel anything, not get convicted. You, you know, you've been there because your heart has grown so hardened to the truth and it's grown so hardened to the Word of God that you can't even feel it anymore, that you can't even hear it anymore. And that's a dangerous place to be for a Christian. Because you see, it's at that moment when you begin to harden your heart that you have one more chance that God is going to try to get your attention. You know how God gets your attention with a hardened heart? He gets your attention either with the Word or with discipline. He's going to do whatever He can to get your attention, to get you back, to break that hardened heart. But Paul says if you don't stop there, you go from a hardened heart to God opening the door and leaving you to your own desires, to your own devices. See, once your heart gets hard and once you've turned your back on God as a believer and you've decided you know everything and you're not even listening anymore, God turns you over to the consequences of your choice. And your desires begin to control you. The Holy Spirit no longer controls you. Your desires do. And that's when the flesh takes over. If something feels good, if you want to do something, that's where the old saying that you sow a thought, you reap an action. You, you let a thought take root in your heart, it's going to lead to an action. If you do that action, sow an action, reap a habit. See, once you do it once, it's much easier to do it twice and three times and four times. And you sow a habit and you reap a behavior. See, it becomes not just a habit anymore. It becomes part of who you are. And you sow a behavior, you reap a character. Because you see, once it becomes a part of your normal behavior, that's just who you are now. Let me give you an illustration like lying. You see, once you begin to think, maybe I should lie, or, or, or losing your temper, or anger. Let's say, let's, let's use lying. It's easy. You say, you know, everybody else is cheating, or everybody else is lying here, and, and it's not going to hurt anybody, and it's just a little white lie. That's sowing a thought. The moment that you do the lie, all of a sudden you've reaped it, and you begin to sow an action. And once you do it one time, then you begin to tell yourself, what does it hurt for me to do it again? Nothing wrong happened. I didn't get caught, and I didn't get in trouble. And so all of a sudden you do it again, and it's more then than just an action. Now it becomes a behavior. And then all of a sudden you're doing it all the time, and you don't even know that you're doing it. You're lying for things that it doesn't even matter that you lie for. It's just becoming a part of who you are. And then all of a sudden your character, who you're known as now, is what? A liar a drunkard, 
a bitter and angry person. Somebody says, what's that person like? They're a liar. They're angry. They're bitter. They're hateful. How did you get there? You got there from a thought. And that's the Bible says is the progression that takes place. You see, you need to understand the battle for the mind is incredibly important. And if you don't get to a place where you stop it, it always ends up in the same place, and it ends up far away from God, not hearing the voice of God, stealing your intimacy, stealing your power. But the hope this morning is that you can break it. See, this morning, no matter where you are, if you recognize the part of that process, you can stop it. You can get away from it. You can turn it around. You can get back to the place where you're pursuing God. But you've got to do something. It starts with the mind. Paul says in Romans 12, in a verse that most of you have heard, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the way to stop it is to renew your mind. See, you have to renew your mind every day. So how do you renew your mind? Well, I could go on and on and on about renewing your mind. I'm just going to give you a couple of hints to help you this morning. Real quickly, a couple of things that you can do practically. If you find yourself in that process somewhere, if you find yourself with a hardened heart, if you find yourself making bad decisions, if you find yourself all of a sudden getting into spiritual ignorance, where all of a sudden sin is, has much more control over your life than you want it to, it starts with your mind. See, it doesn't start with the action. That's what happens in most churches. You come in here, you say, man, I feel bad, Rusty, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. And so I'm going to walk out today and I'm going to commit. I'm not going to do that anymore. But that commitment never lasts because your flesh is not where you make decisions. It's in the mind where the spirit controls it. You see, you have to determine here that I'm going to stop it here because if you stop it here, then you stop. But if you go and you change actions you're, and without attitudes, it's never going to change. So it changes by you renewing your mind. And one area and one way that you can renew your mind, Paul tells the Corinthian church this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to God. How do you renew your mind? The first thing you do is you take your thoughts captive. Now, that sounds crazy, and it sounds like something that's difficult, but the greatest way to nip the sin struggle in the bud is by taking your thoughts captive. What does that mean? It simply means that as thoughts come into my mind, I evaluate every thought, and I determine whether those thoughts are consistent with Jesus, the truth, and the Word. And if that thought meets that standard, if it's something that is pleasing to God, then I allow that thought into my head and it's something that I dwell on. But if it doesn't meet that standard, if it's not consistent with Jesus and the Word of God, usually the Holy Spirit will clue you in. The moment that thought comes, the Holy Spirit will wave a red flag if you're still sensitive to the Holy Spirit. If that thought doesn't meet up to the Holy Spirit, meet up to pleasing to God, I reject it. I don't give it a place to root because, you see, if I allow it into my brain to have a place, it's going to grow. But here's the key. This is, this is where we miss it. So I'm going to give you a quick key. Not only do you have to reject that thought when you take good thoughts captive and reject bad thoughts, but when you get bad thoughts, instead of just rejecting it, you have to put a good thought there in its place. Because if you don't put the truth back into your mind when you've rejected a bad thought, then that bad thought's going to stay there. I want you to think about this. 
Let me give you an illustration. I'll pick on men because we're easy. I'm a man. Men, you go to the mall with your wife. You already are mad because you don't want to be there. Your mind's already wondering because you're trying to think of all the things that you could be doing instead of being in the mall. And you're walking with her through the middle of the mall, and all of a sudden, some young, attractive, nice-looking woman in a half shirt and yoga pants. Nobody would wear that out, would they? Half shirt and yoga pants goes walking by. Maybe you're like the guy that I read about on the Internet. He said he was shopping with his wife at a kiosk, and um, the lady that was waiting on him had a real, real low-cut dress inappropriately low cut to be waiting behind the counter and they were waiting and and uh, she leaned over to pick something up and and the husband couldn't help but notice that she was leaning over to pick something up and without missing a beat as the husband stood there the wife leaned over and whispered was it worth the trouble you're going to be in Because see, just noticing the girl walking by in the yoga pants and half shirt, there's nothing you can do. You, you can't walk around with a veil. You can't walk around like the Jews did, trying to cover their face and protect themselves. You can't help it walks by. But Martin Luther said, you can't help the birds flying over you, but you sure can help them building a nest in your hair. Because you see, the problem is not when they walk by. The problem is when they walk by and you stop and turn around and look a second time. Because that's when the thoughts start coming in. I don't know what thoughts might come into your mind at that point. But I know it's thoughts that can't be pleasing to God. And so you have to ask yourself in that moment, especially when you turn around and look and look and look and look, are you allowing those thoughts to take root? You see, the biblical thing to do is to not look, and if you do look, to stop and take that thought captive in your mind and tell yourself, listen, this is not something that I need to allow in my mind because it is not going to be pleasant to Christ. But that is not enough. You see, then I have to replace that thought that I was trying to get rid of with the truth that is corollary to that thought. So instead of looking at that girl, what I tell myself in my mind is, Rusty, you are a married man. Truth from the Word of God. You are married to a godly, sexy, hot woman. She's not here. I can say all that. And God says, and I use her to satisfy and meet every God-given need that you have. And so when I take that truth and I live in that truth, guess what? I'm not worried about the other thought because it's out of my head now. But you see, if all I do is say, man, I can't look at her. I can't think about that. I can't think about her in those yoga pants and that half shirt. Or if it's a guy wearing, you know, the, the clothes that he shouldn't be wearing that got some of you girls thinking wrong thoughts. If all you do is try to not think about the thought that you shouldn't be thinking about, what are you going to do? You're going to think about it. But the moment that you can stop thinking about it is when you replace it with some truth that is corollary to that. 
See, that's when victory begins to come for you and I. That's when we begin to walk away. That's when we begin to to make the right decisions. But you see, those right decisions can't be made in the moment. It has to be determined before you ever go out of the house, before you ever turn the TV on, before you ever do something that you know you're going to get in trouble. You have to determine in your mind that you're going to take thoughts captive and let the Holy Spirit win. Because you see, if you wait and let the flesh decide, you're going to lose kind of like when I drive home from Hickory. If I go to Hickory, I know I'm going to come to Lenore, and there is a Krispy Kreme on the left-hand side. And if I decide in Hickory before I get to Lenore, I am not stopping at Krispy Kreme. I am trying to lose weight, and it is not right, and it's not. I'm just not going to do it. If I decide before I ever get there, it doesn't matter if the hot sign's on. I can just drive right by. But if I'm thinking about other things... And I'm pulling into Lenore, and I notice that warm glow of the red hot sign. My flesh begins to say, pull over. You can eat a dozen before you ever get home, and nobody will know. They melt in your mouth. Guess who's going to win? My flesh is pulling over. You see, godly decisions, listen to me, I'm done. Godly decisions are not made in the backseat of a car or in front of a computer or when you're at the store. Godly decisions are made with a God-controlled, spirit-led mind long before you ever get there. See, the battle of the mind is important. The battle of the mind is the first step to you having victory, and it starts you on a path to growing in Christ. See, for too many Christians, the Christian life is one step forward, two steps back. And if that's the case, you never get anywhere. 